Nestlons are the Cinderella of the farm policy world. They can deliver almost all the public goods politicians want to see, whether that's better water management, increased biodiversity or carbon sequestration, but they remain under-discussed. Well, not so on today's Over the Farm Gates, where we have a bumper grassland episode for you. I'm Abby Kay, Head of News at Farmers Guardian, and I'll be handing over to Jess Fredenberg, who, with the help of her brilliant guests, is going to show you how to get the most from your grasslands in a low-input outdoor system. Don't forget, you can get more of this great content every week. Just make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you do enjoy the podcast, please do share it with your family and friends on social media. Over to Jez now to talk stocking density, pasture rest, overgrazing, biodiversity, farm resilience, reducing costs, and much, much more. Calling all rural entrepreneurs. Are you looking to diversify your farm or land? Join us at the Farm Business Innovation Show on the 2nd and 3rd of November at the NEC Birmingham. Packed with a variety of information, advice and inspiration to support innovation and diversification for forward-thinking farmers and landowners. Do not miss out and register for your free ticket today at www.farmbusinessshow.co.uk Hello everyone, we have another Farming with Nature Toolbox episode for you today, this time on grassland management. Grazing livestock are often an integral part of regenerative and agroecological systems, and so we've teamed up with Pasture for Life today, a membership organisation for livestock farmers wanting to go fully pasture-fed. Later on, we're getting the farmer perspective from Fidelity Weston, a Kent producer who has been changing her grazing practices to increase her pasture's drought resilience. She also gives us the lowdown on what it's like to manage mob grazing, how she's been reducing input costs and why her connection to her farm has improved. Fidelity has a wealth of experience, so please stay on for that. But first, get your notebooks ready again, because I have Nikki Yoxel with me, an Aberdeenshire farmer and Pasture for Life's head of research. Nikki connects farmers with researchers in the UK and across Europe and also runs a number of farmer groups in Scotland where she advises them about grassland management and helps them transition to low input year round outdoor systems. Nikki, welcome to the Farmer's Garden Over the Farmgate podcast. We'll get more into the detail in a second, but in a nutshell, are you able to outline for us what are the grazing principles that Pasture for Life promotes? Well, within Pasture for Life, we don't um, have a kind of prescriptive approach as to what sort of grazing methods our certified or member farmers would use. Um, But we do try really hard to create the conditions for that kind of peer-to-peer exchange and support for different farmers to test things out. What we do see is that many of our farmers are using at least some sort of rotational grazing, if not going towards a more mob grazing, adaptive a multi-paddock grazing system and we do have farmers that use holistic management as well which is a broader management framework that does integrate grazing management into that wider farm system so we see a broad range of grazing principles and I think what we try to do is to promote approaches that will extend the grazing season and will help our farmers to make the most from the pasture that they have on farm. Mm-hmm. Okay so it's yes yeah, so it's very much um also, I suppose like there's a there's very much a business case for what you're doing, isn't there? There's an economic reason for it. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, the resource in the pasture on every farm is is really the kind of the engine that's going to help that farm to, to do everything that it needs to do um, and to be profitable. We do see pasture for life farms um, tend to be more profitable than their um, than, you know, counterparts in similar areas of the country. And we've we saw that from a research output that we were involved in um, over the last few years. And we think that a lot of that is to do with the reduced inputs and the ability to manage grasslands in a way that are really enabling the business to utilise those natural processes rather than trying to fight them or um, aim for additional productivity above and beyond, but actually um, having that kind of optimal level of grass grass productivity um, whilst at the same time maintaining really healthy, happy animals as well. Mm, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, what, I mean, it's a good time to talk about what are the i guess the other benefits of good grassland management you know what what power do grasslands hold for a farming business yeah absolutely because i think we've really seen in the, over the last year in this sort of drought conditions uh, i mean we didn't have it as bad up here in scotland where i'm based but uh, you know seeing members and and certified farms further south really really having to kind of pull out all the stops in terms of what whatever toolkit they could apply to to manage their grass and I think that we've seen um, lots of conversations within our membership about how farmers are using taller grass grazing systems um, and recognising that that really has been helping them to create a more resilient farm system within within a drought period. Um, so, you know, good grassland management, I think, has changed over time as to what that means. And I think what good means now is about resilience you know how do we build resilience into these farms so that if we have months and months without rain what are those farmers able to do that is going to hold more moisture in the ground and enable a little bit of growth and if not growth but at least those plants not dying off so we definitely found that a lot of our farmers were using this taller grass grazing systems leaving those covers to get taller as they could see drought on the horizon um, which meant that right in the bottom of the sward, there was definitely still a bit of moisture. Um, and we also saw a lot of our farmers going out and doing ground temperature checks with thermometers, um, being able to see the difference between those taller grass grazing areas where it was much, much cooler in the base of the sward compared to areas that were either had been grazed or were bare earth, for example. And it was just really fascinating to see that little bit of kind of almost citizen science of our farmers going out and doing those thermometers, taking their thermometers and doing those temperature checks. And we could see that actually within those taller swards, there was definitely more optimal conditions for growth and continued growth during the gra- during the drought than in areas that had been um, that had been grazed much harder. Mm, that's really interesting, and I, I think it kind of shows, doesn't it, how I guess how the those farmers that you're talking about they were able to actually make management decisions according to what they could see was about to happen. You know, with the with the weather, um, you know, and adapt accordingly. Have more room to room for manoeuvre there. Um, I guess what um, you know when you when you're sort of working with farmers, like you said, you, you've been you go out on farm a lot. What are the other sorts of changes that you see other than what you've maybe already mentioned? Yeah, I think one of the really interesting changes that I've seen on farms, again, who are trying to be more adaptive and resilient is mobbing their groups up together. So where historically they might have run, I don't know, five bullying groups of cattle and they'd have kept them all separate during the year as well and managed them as five discrete groups. Actually, 
one of the most powerful things that we can do on our farms to increase our resilience and our productivity, particularly in the face of climate change, is create rest into the system. And it's very difficult to have rest across the whole grazing platform if you've got all these different groups of animals everywhere. Whereas actually a lot of farms that we're seeing are bringing them more together. So they might be separating out for bulling and maybe even for carving, just for management. But in between those times, you know, bringing all those animals together in one big group so that they can move them around and create as much rest as possible elsewhere on the farm. And I think that's definitely something during these drought conditions we've had this year that farmers have found has helped them to always have something to go on to. You know, there's always somewhere that they can move their animals, even if the grass isn't brilliant when they get there at least they're moving them onto a fresh bite, um, which I think also can really help the farmer, you know, mental health and, you know, feel slightly less under pressure, which is obviously really, really important at the moment. Um, I think the other thing that we're seeing is with that rest period comes an increase in the amount of um, biodiversity. And these are things that we're still trying to quantify. And through my work within the research space, we're involved in a number of projects that are actually trying to um, understand what that difference is. You know, how much more biodiversity gain can you get if you create rest in the system? But we know that the farmers who are involved, for example, in our project in the Cairngorms are seeing far more flowering plants um, actually get the opportunity to flower because they've put rest into their grazing systems and their grazing management approaches. And those flowers are getting the opportunity to do their thing which obviously has a great benefit to insects, you know, to various other sort of pollinators and other animals. And all of that feeds in up the trophic levels so that the farm just becomes a more diverse and abundant place. So not only is it beneficial for the farm productivity, it has real benefit for nature restoration as well. So can you give a little bit more, um, a little bit more detail, Nikki, about how, how biodiversity like that in the grassland, you know, improving um, biodiversity in the grassland, how does that benefit the farm? If we want our farms to be resilient, successful, adaptive businesses and ecosystems, we need them to function as whole ecosystems. And I think historically what farming has done is try to simplify things as much as possible to control and to manage and to bring things under, um, you know, within very strict kind of uh, management parameters. And what that means is that we end up trying to manage incomplete ecosystems, uh, which means that they become less resilient. So the more abundant, the more diverse the agro ecosystem or the farm ecosystem becomes, the more able it is to utilise those existing natural processes to maintain um, a level of life and cycling, nutrient cycling and energy cycling that is actually going to be beneficial for the farm business and requires fewer inputs to try and shift those things along. And I think an example I hear lots of farmers talk about is looking under hedges or on roadside verges. And those places are very rarely disturbed. You know, they might get the odd mow or the odd um, chomp from passing cattle, for example, but they tend to be pretty undisturbed places that get lots of rest. And they also tend to have really good soil structure. So we often have farmers digging under hedges and on verges to explore the soil structure, to see what the water infiltration looks like and to have a look at the different diversity and flowering plant species there. And we always hear about how great it is at the edges, but actually that functioning is something that we need to find ways of bringing into the field. So the more function, well, better functioning our soils are, so the more that they can absorb water, the more air can get into our soils, which will help feed the microbiology that live there. All of these things contribute to far more adaptive, resilient farms going forward. And I think the ecosystem can then function as an ecosystem rather than as a system we're always trying to control and go into battle with. 
Yeah, no, I think that's it's a great way to to explain it, and it's it's just much more holistic, isn't it? And also, it just sounds really enjoyable, you know, rooting around under hedges and things like that. It just sounds really nice to be able to see, um, I guess, see the the changes on the farm and see the biodiversity improve, and then the soils improve, and everything kind of work through like that. Um, let Let's talk about the, the the basics of good grassland management though in in more detail. you've You've obviously talked about the importance of resting there and the importance of um, seeing the farm much more as a whole ecosystem. Yeah, I think there's some I mean rest is the key principle, I think. Um, well, maybe not rest, but time. And I think all too often we think about the number of animals being the kind of factor that has the most uh, impact on on our grazing. But actually, I think if we use time instead, then that can really help us to um, to slightly change that that mindset of how we graze our farms. So this doesn't just mean the time that the plants get to rest in between grazings, but it also means the amount of time that the livestock are on a particular area. And I was looking at some really interesting research the other day that said continuous grazing on any landscape um, has a massive uh, detrimental impact to insect life. Um, and actually, if we can compartmentalise, split up with electric fences, use no fence collars, heft, whatever it is that we're doing, that we can very much control where the animals are going to be to create not only the impact they have at the point of grazing, but also make sure that the rest of the grazing platform has that rest. I think that is the number one way that we can address biodiversity decline on farms, but also increase productivity. I think the other principles of kind of better grassland management is, you know, is making sure that, that we're not overgrazing. And this comes back to the point I just made about, you know, the amount of time that animals are on a particular area. So if they're going to be kind of quite, um, you know, you're going to be cell grazing, for example, and you've got your electric fences and you put those animals on there. A rule of thumb that I always try to follow, and this isn't followed by all farmers because, you know, there are some that kind of use this total grazing approach where they'll, um, really graze everything right down to the floor, but then give it really, really long rest periods so it has a, has time to come back. You know, sometimes up to maybe one graze a year or two grazes a year. So these long, long rest periods. But others who are maybe managing slightly different systems would be um, kind of skim grazing. So they're just allowing the animals to take one bite and then they're, you know, being moved on. So it's all about managing the, if you're going to graze hard, you need lots of rest. If you're going to graze lighter, you still need rest. But it also gives you the opportunity to have something to come back to. And I think, you know, understanding that we don't want to be overgrazing um, which means having that long rest period is really, really important. Does that does that mean, Nikki, that um, we would necessarily need to look at lower stocking densities from what the average livestock farmers used to? No, and I find it really interesting because this point comes up a lot when when talking about kind of that transition is oh I'd have to destock, but actually mm. that might happen. That might have to happen just as a farmer kind of gets their head around changing their grazing management and just giving themselves a little bit less pressure. Um, but the research that we're seeing actually shows that these kind of more cell grazing, mob grazing, adaptive grazing approaches can increase the carrying capacity per hectare and extend the grazing season both of which can really help the bottom line. So I think that, um, yeah, the assumption that actually you need fewer animals just isn't the case. You're just changing where they are. And actually the density that they're of their cell or the, the paddock that they're grazing can be pretty high. Um, and, you know, kind of extrapolating that out across the farm doesn't necessarily mean that you need you need fewer animals. Um, I would say that lots of farmers going through a kind of transition period will always try and start being understocked 
as I said, it just takes that pressure off. It just makes it a little bit easier to make the transition. And one way of doing that is just making sure that you're kind of culling out or taking out of the system those animals, you know, at the bottom that are underperforming. Um, so we do see lots of our members, for example, when they're looking to transfer transition into being certified, they might make that management decision. But it's more for taking the pressure off themselves and trying to carry maybe less suitable animals through into a system change rather than thinking I actually need fewer feet or fewer mouths on the ground. So um, and what we do see then is farms who are kind of, you know, got grass coming out of their ears um, and actually think, oh, God, I need more animals to now to now manage this. So, um, yeah, I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a myth, um, but but it yeah, needs probably further consideration on each farm um, and mm. depending on their context. Do you, do you find as well, I mean, do you see a lot of farmers, um, like you said, you know, that they're, they're often going to be taking out, you know, culling a few, taking taking a few out. But do many um, look at uh, changing the, the, the breed that's on there to a more native breed, like adapted to their specific landscapes and grasslands? Is that something that happens much? Yeah, I think it does. Um, and we often have this conversation within Pasture for Life that it's not necessarily about breed, but it's about type. Um, and sometimes we can see more genetic variation within breeds than we can between breeds. So I think we need mm. to be a bit careful by saying, you know, these particular breeds are most suitable for these particular systems. Because actually, if you um, select for particular traits within any breed, you can probably get them, you know, over time, closer to the type that you need to suit your system. So... Many of our pasture for life farms do use native breeds, I would say probably 90 percent. Um, and that's just because of various other, uh, you know, the, the fact that they are they are kind of environmentally adapted and um, have evolved to do really, really well off the native pastures that we have in the UK. It kind of just makes sense. But we do have some uh, certified farms that are using um, still having, you know, some sort of Solaire or um uh, so, you know, other kind of European breeds in there, um, but they're just making sure that they are selecting for the, the right traits for their system. Um, and I think that that's really important for every farm to do, regardless of what your system is. It's about making sure that you're not keeping animals that don't meet your basic requirements. How do you how do you suggest that people deal with um, things like medication and wormers and things like that, that they would normally have managed in a, in a potentially in a different way yeah well within the pasture for life um, certification standard which certifies 100 percent pasture fed livestock um we do have some quite clear guidance on on our expectations and actually we're, we're reviewing that at the moment and we're we're looking to support more of our well particularly our certified farms to um kind of put in place feck testing so that they are not worming just as a as a just in case approach but you know that they're addressing issues around anthelmintic resistance but also biodiversity impact by only worming um as you know as 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 little as possible but as much as is necessary so if they need to worm as identified by undertaking feck testing so fecal egg counts then absolutely you know that needs to then be detailed in their health plan and be clear about why they're doing what they're doing um you know it's a similar sort of approach to how organics has, has been you know for a long time um but again when most of our farms seem to be employing these more um, mob or cell or adaptive adaptive multi-paddock grazing systems where the animals are grazing tall grass they have fewer um, they tend to have fewer 
parasite issues because they're grazing out of the parasite zone, which is at about 15 centimetres above the ground. So if the animals are actually grazing higher than that, there's much less risk of them ingesting any sort of um, eggs. And then um, we're also seeing, again, that rest period. So the animals take a single bite and move on. They're not staying in potentially infected paddocks. So and the long rest periods can then obviously disrupt the breeding cycle of the parasite. So we do see that it's a kind of um, a pronged approach, I guess. You know, there's the aspect of grazing management that's going to address um, reducing the risk of the of the infection or the, you know, the, the issue to begin with then also um, using the effect testing so that then the appropriate action can be taken. And we are seeing some farms who are, again, as part of their selection and, and culling criteria, relate to animals that are able to thrive with a higher worm burden, because historically that's what would have happened before we had anthelmintics. You know, animals would have had to cope with some level of worm burden, and we see that in wildlife populations. And actually it's um, evolution or, or, you know, selection pressure that is the thing that allows, that kind of selects out the animals that can thrive under that so as long as there are no welfare issues there are some farmers who are doing that to try and select for for that kind of natural um, ability to thrive mm. and what about if um say say you're a farmer who wants to move to an either an all year round outdoor system or um or just like reduce the amount of time indoors and and they're sort of maybe worrying about um, nutrition as well if it's going to be outdoor system I mean, how how does everything stack up nutritionally being outdoors on grass like this yeah well we've we see two kind of main approaches to winter management one is deferred grazing where farms will shut up fields in the late summer and won't come back onto them until the winter and the other thing is bale grazing where you know farms are putting uh, farmers are putting bales out in fields and then rolling them out um you know a bale or two a day for their for their animals depending on the number of animals that they have and sometimes those things work together so that's what we do on our farm is that we have deferred grazing with bales sitting on top um so that they're getting a mixed bite of the hay and also um, of the grass. And, and it was really interesting. One of the farmers that I'm working with up here in Scotland actually um, did some analysis on his deferred grazing. Um, and he had also been feeding out silage every other day. And actually the deferred grass was better nutritionally than the silage. So I think that that's a really key point is that do the tests, you know, ma- measure this stuff if, you, if you're worried about it. And again, it comes back to the same thing as doing the faecal egg counts rather than taking a just in case approach. Actually get your, sa- your forage samples analysed. I think it's like 16, it's under 20 quid a sample to get that done. Um, and this potential savings of being able to keep animals out longer or, you know, or at least or all year round or at least just less time indoors, it's going to be thousands saved. So 20 quid on a on a, a forage sample to just to check whether you need to feed additional hay or not or whether you need to put some silage out or whatever you need to do is, you know, it's it's easy to spend that small amount of money to make those savings later on. What's the, I guess, what's the mindset shift here, Nikki, that we're talking about? I think, um, well, it's different for different people. Um, But I think sometimes folk want to um, kind of manage too much and do too much. And we've we've had, you know, sort of 80 years of farming um, law, if you like, or kind of, you know, or um, inherited wisdom that really encourages us to, to dabble and interfere with natural processes. And I think one of the things I really see in farms who work with us within Pasture for Life is that their main mindset shift is to recognise that like nature's got this 
Um, nature's been doing this for millennia and, you know, we've been kind of faffing around at the edges for a relatively short time in comparison. And and scarily, having been doing that, we've we've wreaked havoc on some of our, you know, on our ecosystems. Um, and so I think it's it's always the willingness just to step back and embrace that complexity of nature, but recognise actually trying to keep things simple. Yeah, sim- simplifying and complexity, I think, have gone the wrong way around um, with conventional agricultural approaches up until now. And just swapping that mindset, swapping those two things around a little bit, you know, simple, simple doing and, and complex ecosystems rather than complex doing and uh, simple ecosystems, I think, is, is a much, much better way to go. Thank you, Nikki. Um, where can people find out find out more, either from Pasture for Life or or elsewhere? Where would you suggest that they they go as a kind of first first stop? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so pastureforlife.org is our website um, and there's loads of information on there about becoming a member. Um, and you don't have to be a farmer to be a member and you don't have to be uh, 100% pasture fed to be a member. So anyone can join. Um, and we also have certification standard for those farmers who do want to take that next step. And all the information is on the website. I would also really recommend um, the Soil Association's YouTube channel, which has got a brilliant series. And I'm not just saying that because I'm involved in it, but a brilliant series of mob grazing videos um so that are really practical like what size paddock should i start with and how do i manage water and you know how much should i graze or not graze so soil association over the last few years have done some really really great videos across a whole range of systems upland lowland sheep cattle um you know bigger bigger herd and flock numbers down to much smaller um so there'll be something on there that is relevant for everybody so i yeah really recommend the their youtube uh, channel for that So now we're heading over to Kent to talk to Fidelity Weston. Fidelity is an organic livestock farmer who has been changing her grassland management over the last few years to make her pastures more resilient to the droughts increasingly affecting the southeast. Here she is when I spoke to her earlier today. We farm just outside Sevenoaks in Kent. We've been here for 38 years and our farm straddles the Weald Clay and Greensand Ridge, so we've got a very lovely slopey bit and some flat fields as well. Um, we've been organic since 2000 and certified pasture for life for probably about the last 10 years. And our main enterprises at the moment are um, Hereford cattle and a flock of about 180 sheep. The The landscape around here is very wooded. Um, over the years, we've joined up all of our hedges um, onto our woodlands and we have small fields. And I'd say a feature of our farm is that we're basically permanent pasture. Um, we really feel that permanent pasture needs to be valued far more than it is. And over the years, we've tried to get diversity into that. So um, we've actually, using countryside stewardship payments, um, put in some wildflower meadows. And I'm working on a new introduction of wildflower meadow project right now as we speak. Um, and alongside that, we've also um, just seen the change in our um, pastures moving from when we first came here to being probably eight or fewer species per square metre to most of them now are up towards a dozen or 15 and some are over the top of that. So by reducing our fertiliser and changing our grazing management, I feel that we are always adding to the diversity of, of our meadows. That, that sounds incredible. And what are you, you practising? Are you practising mob grazing or what's your, what's your system? 
Well, it's a bit of a mix now. Um, I think the biggest change that took place was in 2000 when we converted to organic and we just stopped putting nitrogen fertiliser on our fields and that, that led to the most astonishing change. Um, and then more recently, um, because I'm a member of um, Pasture for Life, I've seen what other people have been gaining in from their mob grazing um, and it's partly gaining more grass and being much more resilient to the drought. But also um, you can see how it does improve the diversity because under a mob grazing regime, you move your cattle and sheep very regularly. Some people do it many times a day, some people once a day. Um, we tend to do it as it suits us. Um, my aim really is to get those deeper rooting plants to try and get our very heavy clay soils into better condition. And most of all, to increase our resilience in the face of severe drought. We live in the southeast, and to be honest with you, out of the last five years, four of them, we've had exceptionally dry summers and hugely high temperatures. So our grasses literally get burnt off. And those ones that we're grazing running through them quickly and leaving a good amount of grass definitely withstand that um, climate change much better than the other fields do. Mm, and, and of course, at the moment, we're sort of facing the prospect of the drought continuing on a technical level, aren't we, into next year, because they're sort of thinking there's not going to be enough rain over this winter to make up for the loss of it. How do you think your your grasslands are going to cope with that? Well, actually, that's a. Uh, I think from a farming point of view on grasslands, the drought issue is slightly different because actually, to us, it benefits us to have a slightly drier winter because it makes it easier for us to keep the cattle out. But this winter, um, so we, that's the, one of the things we've been aiming to move towards is keeping the cattle out for longer um, in order to save housing costs and to, to use the dung and everything else to put fertility straight back into the fields. If we, because we're on clay soils, if we have a drier winter, it is actually easier for us to do that. So we're not too sorry about the drier winter, except that the reservoirs are not getting filled up, which is in itself a serious problem. Um, but what's happened this year is because the drought was so bad in the summer, we haven't got that stockpile of grass to put the cattle on over the winter. So if you want to start wintering your cattle out more without damaging your soils you need to put them into some pretty long grass and to be honest with you we've had to eat all the grass off this summer so I haven't quite worked out what I'm going to do this winter um, we're really lucky now we've had an amazing growing period with a long mild and slightly wet period so we're, we've still got lovely grass there but it's not got a great deal of bulk on it and it may just be that we have to house our cattle for a bit more this winter than we'd really be aiming to achieve. What what would you suggest to to farmers listening who might be wanting um, to change their grassland management practices to something more like mob grazing, but they're kind of thinking, oh, you know, maybe maybe <clears throat> because they haven't done that up until now, how how do you kind of make that transition without putting your your cattle onto some grass that's really not been rested and is not able to maybe cope with that kind of intensity? I would say it's very hard. You know, it's really hard to make that leap. And I made the leap because I'm a member of Pasture for Life. There's an amazing forum there. And through that, I'd seen what other farmers had achieved. So I was pretty determined to do it. Having the constant drought meant it was harder to get that bulk of grass. We were incredibly lucky that last year was very wet. And that was the year I felt, right, I can really go for it. And I'd, I think I'd just say to other farmers, it's so worth just giving it a go. Buy yourself some electric fencing. It's not too expensive. Um, just one strand will keep your cattle in and just start doing it because it's not until you start doing it that you can see the results and frankly we so I did it just on one field I've 
really consistently mob grazed it every time. I haven't done anything else to that field. And it's noticeably, just after three years, noticeably better than the other fields. The water's draining through better, but it comes springs back so much more quickly after these dry periods. So it is more resilient than, than our other fields have been. So it, once you start doing it, you can see the benefits of doing it, but I think you just have to get on and do it yourself. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Join the pasture for life and there'll be plenty of farmers who'll hold your hand and say, come on, yeah, you're doing it the right way. Just get on. <laughs> keep, keep going. Can, can you remember, Fidelity, when you started making that transition, were, were there any things that you got wrong or that you, you kind of think back to now, thinking, oh, God, that was, you know, that was a mistake or I know what to do now? Um, yes, I'm sure there were plenty of things I got wrong. One thing I think I got right was we'd, we'd used electric fencing quite a lot anyway on the farm because we'd had pigs and poultry, so I was quite used to electric fencing. But one thing I resolved to do right at the beginning was to choose um, a, a fencing make that was really light, really good, and I could carry myself easily across the field. So I think choosing the right type of fencing is really important. Um I think that we still haven't cracked it for the sheep. It's much harder for the sheep. They're more difficult to keep in and pulling up three strands of wire is harder than one. It's more time consuming. So to be honest, when I do the sheep, we have them in the paddocks for longer, perhaps move them every four or five days and not every single day. Um, I... Um, I, I did get something wrong because I got, got some... I managed to get um kit that meant that I had to um sort of wriggle around with the end of a piece of wire and managed to knock my teeth out because it pinged back in my, oh my mouth. So goodness, that, that was didn't. really, really annoying. Um, oh, my gosh. Actually, I have to say that I, I wouldn't say I'd got anything totally wrong to start with, but that you're constantly tweaking it and refining it and realise things that are better and work for you. So uh, I think my tip would be just make sure you get the kit that you really feel comfortable with and it's worth spending the money on stuff that you can easily carry and it's very efficient to put up and down. What are those absolute basics, I guess, um, that you would explain to somebody who has maybe just been, you know, a livestock farmer, but um, has been farming quite conventionally up until now? What are those kind of basics that you would um, explain to them that they would need to sort of start thinking about to to farm in this more sort of, um, I guess, more agroecological way? I think that I would, so I'd say we we were one step ahead because we'd stopped using nitrogen fertiliser. So um, I think that if you have been using nitrogen fertiliser and you're quite heavily stocked, the, the really difficult bit is getting in with the, uh, the level of stock that you're carrying on your land. So I was quite fortunate that when we decided to go for it, we weren't overstocked and that definitely helped. And I can imagine that if you are pretty tightly stocked, you're going to find it hard to get the first fields ready to get growing long enough to start moving your stock in. So you would need to think about that and possibly reduce your stock numbers a bit. Having said that, one of the amazing things about some of the people who've been doing mob grazing maybe for 10 years or so now is that actually their stock levels are astonishingly high and they've they've their their land the mantra that grass grows grass really is true and that they're now got incredibly um robust stocking levels much more so than us because we're not um doing it as rigorously as some of them are so i think as that is the first thing that would be hard is you've somehow got to let a field get ahead of you and then start putting the stock in that that is difficult 
reducing stock or waiting until if you're lucky you get a wet year and then you've got too much grass for the stock you've got and then that's the year to go for it. But what are you still trying to tweak as well? You said this is all a, a kind of constant tweaking process to find exactly the right system for you. What, what are you tweaking at the moment? Um, there's lots of things I'm still tweaking and also getting the infrastructure. And so once you've decided to go for it, you have then you've got to, it's not just the electric fence you're moving, you're moving your water supply every day with your cattle as well. So you've got to start getting in a mobile water system. Um, we've got, we're actually running our electricity off, our electric fencing off electricity, not batteries. So I've got a couple of, um, um, iron armoured cables which go out to a couple of spots in the field and we're running it off there. In order to do it you need to put up some permanent um, electric wire to take the lead out electrics and you can start running your mobile stuff off it. All of that takes planning and also a bit of experience. You realise after you know doing one field that actually there might have been a better way of doing it. So I'd say that um, I'm constantly tweaking it in order to get the whole farm covered by the mob grazing. So at the moment I've definitely not got a whole farm. We've got one side of it which is pretty well set up for it. The other side is not set up for it. I can get mobile electric fencing there using a battery which I might decide to do. Um, but to be honest with you, sometimes I just think it's quite nice to just let the cattle have a whole field and not worry too much about it. So I think you shouldn't feel that you need to go for the whole caboodle all in one go. Just put your foot in the water and start testing it out and then build it up as you go along. How has it been um, seeing the biodiversity really flourish on your farm? Because you, you talked earlier on about, you know, the how the biodiversity has really increased in your grasslands. What's that mm. been like? So um, we're really keen on our biodiversity here at Rumshed. And um, I have to say that one of the things that um, I'm really on the watch out for is um, is that we don't decrease our biodiversity of some species by mob grazing. So um, I'm a firm believer in changing the way you graze a field, putting sheep across, cattle across, different management leads to different biodiversity outcomes. Um, there's it's without a doubt, the, one of the amazing things about mob grazing is you're leaving much longer grasses, you're leaving it much more rough and tufty, and that is brilliant for voles. All sorts of species will benefit from that. Um, so generally speaking, it is definitely adding diversity. And if you imagine you've um, you put off one section of your field just for one day and put the cattle in it, and for the rest of the time, that little section is rested. So species... The hedges, for instance, are only nibbled for one day by our cattle and not constantly because they're in there the whole day. So there is a huge biodiversity gain. What I suppose I'm no one wondering is whether there's going to be a slight loss of maybe small plant species or the little plants that actually benefit from having sheep nibbling across them from short grass. Um, and so that sort of loss might not be balanced out by the gain. So Again, I think the other marvellous thing about mob grazing is that for us, anyway, we walk a lot more than we did um, putting it up, going to look at the cattle. I just notice my grasslands a lot more. I'm always looking at them and really actively noticing the changes. Um, so I hope that I will notice if I think something's the balance is tipping too far in the wrong direction, I'll probably do something to try and rectify it. That, that's an interesting kind of take on it, isn't it? Is how you experience it as as the farmer you know is it something that do you find that you 
enjoy um I, I guess like this management or it does it sometimes feel like a real hassle because you're having to go out and move the fences again but like you say you're getting to really really know your pastures mm. well basically it's very enjoyable and um I mean of course there are days when you're rushed but again it's a matter of getting into the mindset of planning it so if you know you're going to be rushed one day you might set up two paddocks in front of you so all you've got to do then is you walk across the field you open up the gate then you lift up one piece of electric wire to let your cattle through into the next paddock already set up for you when you had a bit more time you you're right close up to your cows and calves and things as well you see them properly every single day they walk past you um, and I, I just love that. I love the smell of the cows. And, you know, we go out in the summer and the swallows are just going hell for leather over the cow pats in the field. You, 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 I've just, I just noticed so much more. And now I'm much closer to everything that I'm doing. So overall, it's great. And you can plan ahead for when you know you're going to be busy or maybe get somebody else who's around to learn how to do electric fencing and help you out. What, what have you noticed about your, your cattle as well um, in farming in this way? Have you noticed any change in them, like in their, perhaps in their health status or, you know, how are they kind of responding to this? Um, OK, so I should be completely honest with you, Jez, and say that if I put my cows now into a big open field with no pens, they go completely bananas and they run all over the place. <laughs> they l- absolutely love it. Um, so and I, I love watching them and the calves go charging around all over the place and they go and browse all the trees and the branches and things. So, it, you know, we are restricting their, their, their ability to do that. But having said that, Cattle are herd animals. They don't seem the slightest bit unhappy in the field. They're all together um, munching away. Um, if if I go out in the field, they start mooing at me because they know that they're going to be moved. And then you move them through and they are grazing, put their head straight down, grazing the nice fresh grass. They're getting a bit of fresh grass every single day, which must be nice for them. Um, we do it in a way, I'd say our cows, they've always been in great condition, our cattle. And so... Um, I haven't noticed too much difference, although I've been on the watch out. So, for instance, this year, because we had such an excessively long drought and where we were in Kent, it didn't really start raining until September. We were putting them at the end into really tall brown hay. There was nothing, no nutrients in it at all. They're rearing their calves and they were clearly losing condition. Not seriously, but they were not looking blooming. But they would have been like that anyway because of the weather not because we were managing in actual fact because we'd been doing the mob grazing at least we did still have that long grass for them to go into it was okay it was as brown as anything but at least they had stuff to eat in front of them which if we hadn't been doing the mob grazing they wouldn't have done and we would be they'd been nibbling on maybe we'd even been having to feed them hay so obviously their condition does go up and down with the quality of forage that you can give them but that applies however you're doing your grazing you just have to watch watch that and what about economically? How's, how does it all stack up? So um, I started thinking I've, I've got to do something about the BPS going. I've got to somehow um, make this business. I mean, to be honest with you, we're a 200-acre farm. Our suckler herd is 20 to 25, flock of 150 to 200 sheep. We don't make much money out of the farm and, you know, we work our pants off for it. And the loss of the BPS is significant. 
we, we're totally dependent on our countryside stewardship grants we get in, which and I completely support everything they do. So one of my reasons for wanting to try this out was feeling that actually we could keep the grass growing better, we could reduce our overwintering costs because we can start keeping the cattle out. So it was financial um, that pushed me towards thinking I've got to do something about it. So we... And I think we're getting there. You know, we are shaving the shoulders off our winter housing. Um, we are getting more grass growing. It is withstanding the drought more. We're better placed to withstand the withdrawal of the BPS than we might have been before. So I think there's every sound reason for doing it. And in fact, if we'd been paying for fertiliser to go on the fields, which we haven't done for 20 years, how long we more than that since we went organic... Um, Many of the other farmers who move to this type of grazing quickly realise they no longer need to spend money on fertiliser. They're getting the same quantity of grazing as they would have done. So, you know, you can really start seeing the costs um, running running off. Um, another area of cost that I feel should be helping is by constantly moving your cattle and sheep. You should be using less wormers and um, because you're moving them around much more. So... I see it as a means to an end of really reducing our input costs and so, at the end of the day, making us very slightly more profitable than we might have been before. Mm. So no no regrets in, uh, in sort of transitioning to this method then? Absolutely none at all. Um, um, we're not doing it across the whole farm. We've still got variety of species and grazing, uh, but no regrets at all. I really think it's a really good thing to be doing and um, it's just a matter of honing it and making it as effective as you can for your own farm and it'll be different for everybody that's it for this week's over the farm gates don't forget to pick up a copy of this week's farmer's guardian where you can read all about new defra secretary therese coffee what exactly are her farming views and why tree planting and rewilding are driving hill flock dispersals until next week from us at fg thank you for listening